So today we are, this is our second of our two-parter on Janet Smith's argument against the morality of contraception. Uh, the bundle I just gave you is for the following lecture with um, Griset, so that's not for this morning. So let's try and remember what we said about Janet Smith and her argument. So what's kind of at the big picture her approach? Anyone? Purposiveness. I'm not even sure I used that word, but that's a very good summary. Um, purpose and sniffs, purposes, things having a purpose. <laughs> um, in what sense? Uh, Someone who isn't Daniel. <laughs> Michael. Uh, the idea that nature has ends and when you use things contrary to those ends, it's wrong. Right. Um, and so on one level, all moral theologians would kind of accept that as the big picture. Smith's style of argument is taking that to the particular and not just the general, not to just say man's end is God and if you don't reach that, that's a sin, but to say we can look much closer in our analysis of human behavior. So, unpacking that some more, David? Unpacking that some more. Okay. Um, so Sorry, I've been talking to too many British accents this weekend. <laughs> so, um, so she focuses on um, the, the body. Um, she says that an organ is made for a certain purpose, for a certain end. Um, but she's not... Uh, so that, that's like uh, what someone would call physicalism. Uh, approach, and she says that yes, uh, that's not the whole thing, but it's part of her argument to say that there is a physical aspect that needs to appropriately function um, and be ordered to a certain end. Sorry. You're okay. Yeah. Okay, so ter terminology, physicalism is a label, I think, invented by Charles Curran. He certainly used it um, as an attack on preconciliar, kind of neo-scholastic versions of this argument, uh, where everything is focused on the physical. That the sexual faculty, the act terminates when sperm is deposited in its proper place that the act ends, therefore that is the end talos of the act. That's, if you thwart that, you're thwarting the act. Smith's analysis looks deeper than that and says, well, we don't care just about physical processes as physical processes, but those physical processes indicate and relate to the broader person. And if we mess with those processes, we do something that has a personal significance. So physicalism, the Charles Curran progressive complaint about neo-scholastic versions of the argument, Smith says the physiological argument is what is going on there in terms of looking at the physiology and she says that is part of any authentic Catholic argument about sexual morality in general. That you look at the body, its functionings, you see that these matter to the person who has this body, the person who has these functions. And you start messing with those and tampering with their ends and teleology. And you don't just thwart the flourishing the end of those bits, but you therefore thwart the flourishing of the person who has those bits. And with some things of a human person, that's more significant than others. You know, some bits of my body are just more 
important to me than other bits. Um, and so the, the SCDF, as it was then called, when it's talking about grave matter, says that all sins of the, of the flesh, of, of a sexual nature, are grave matter because they have such high values to the human person that if they are engaged with, they engage us at our deepest level. Whereas, um, I don't know, there are all kinds of things I can do with my hand, not all of them are equally significant, or, or with my foot, or um, my knee, or... Um, Uh, let's see what else was were we looking at. Um, so teleology, the end. Um, let's think for a moment in terms of natural law and a moral imperative in this question. So it's one thing to say, well, it's kind of not good, or it stops flourishing. Why does this relate to the moral law? Why does God care about this? Christopher. Because that's the way God designed it. Yeah. He's the creator. He's a rational God. Everything he's made is according to his rational plan. He's made things to flourish in a certain way. So, you know, so the Book of Wisdom says there's nothing he made that he didn't make for its flourishing. He cares about human flourishing. And when we don't care, we are disvaluing, disrespecting, rejecting the plan of the Creator. And we're either rejecting his plan explicitly, which only happens in contempt of God. So that's quite rare for people to explicitly say directly against God's sins of contempt. They exist. Um, much more frequently are sins that implicitly reject him by rejecting those values, behaviors that are embedded within us. Um, that thwart ourselves and thus reject his plan. So again, more broadly speaking, in talking of um, mortal sin, uh, John Paul II says that it's not only sins of contempt for God that are mortal sins, but all kinds of sins that just are contrary in their object to what is compatible with the love of God and love of neighbor. So I could murder my neighbor and not think about God at all. I could murder my neighbor. Sorry, I'm pointing at you as I say that. Uh, <laughs> I could murder my neighbor um, and not think about God, murder my neighbor and have no contempt of God at all. But it's still a mortal sin because the object of the act has something structurally within it that is incompatible, as the Catechism praises it, with authentic love of God, authentic love of neighbor. And there are all kinds of things with the sins of the flesh here. I don't need to be thinking of God for this to be something that is capable of killing my relationship with him implicitly, even if I'm not thinking of him explicitly. Eating. So map this out for us in terms of the human faculty of eating, the human activity of eating. Okay, yep, yep. Um, phrasing that in terms of end, telos. So the end of eating is nutrition, so that's kind of the goal we're going for. Uh, but again, 
So the, what's called the perverted faculty argument would look at human faculties and say, what is the end, the purpose in this? If I thwart that faculty, I'm thwarting the person. Um, so eating is therefore an analogy here to thwarting the purpose of the sexual act. Um, your answer is a little deeper than I was immediately looking for and that you're mentioned kind of natural, unnatural acts there. So eating would remain, even when it's too much or too little, a natural act but out of measure. Whereas the sexual faculty is different in that there are all kinds of ways it can be used that are just contrary in a way that we call them unnatural, not just natural but out of context. That's a good, I think that probably would be, yes, so eating that nails, because that then isn't nutrition too much or too little. That. <laughs> or let's say in comparison with cows eating rocks, like uh, a cow or maybe a camel or something, they eat rocks for a purpose um, so that they can properly digest Okay. Okay. Whereas it, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I can conceive in a certain condition of your digestive tract, a doctor telling you to eat iron filings that might somehow, if that was for the purpose of digestion and making everything work, then it wouldn't be contrary. But yeah, I think this example, eating nails would be an unnatural use of um, the eating function. I'm not sure it would be a workable example and that you can't swallow them. Yeah? So I'm quite... There's a degree, there's a degree like an airplane, bit by bit, you eat the whole thing. Wow. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is like in the Facebook of World yeah. Records or what, Was he an American? Probably yeah. <laughs> okay. So here's the big question: Natural or unnatural? Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll we'll come back to that example later. Um, I think that takes us up to summarising what we looked at last time. So, page six of my lecture notes. We were halfway down that page, I think. So you see the little section there where I said what natural means. So here, um, part of her thing about her argument not just being physical, not just being physiological, but noting the physiological, what does natural mean? And one of the things we're going to come on to here, it definitely does not mean animal. Because the church is fine with tampering with animals finalities, with contraception for animals, with you know, artificial, artificial insemination for cows is quite normative in lots of farming now. Church has no problem with that at all. Because sex for an animal does not engage it at a personal level, the way it does for humans. Okay, natural, what do we mean then? I say a broad, multifaceted analysis. So this broader definition of natural distinguishes her from older perverted faculty arguments. So she draws on John Paul II's personalism and on his theology of the body. So natural means not solely what refers to the functional integrity of the organs, but whatever facilitates the well-being of anything, both in its parts and as a whole. Quoting her directly, what is in accord with the very being of a thing? What is in accord with the natural inclinations of a thing? What tends to promote what is good for that thing? And you've all done enough philosophy to recognize those as all kind of articulating the same thing. What is the nature of a thing? How do I know what this thing is? Well, I look what makes it flourish, that 
kind of indicates what it is. I look what it's inclined towards. That tells me something about what it is. Um, Now we've got through six pages of notes here on contraception without actually defining it. So let's finally define what contraception is. Uh, Michael, could you read that definition for us? So this is Smith's definition, to be clear, not the church's. All acts which attempt to impede procreation, both chosen as a means to an end and those chosen as, as ends. This includes acts that precede intercourse, acts that accompany intercourse, and acts directed to the natural consequences of now she's trying to cover all her bases there in terms of what does she mean. So let's play, uh, spell that out, what she mean. As means. So using the pill to make your husband not complain. So, you know, you don't want to not have children. Your end is that your husband isn't going to complain. So contraception for you is then just a means. That also is contraception and is excluded. As an end, Using the pill because you yourself don't want children. That's kind of the most obvious example. You, why are you doing it? The end is to not have children. Proceeding intercourse. Well, the pill you take for days beforehand. Accompanying intercourse, like the condom. Or directed to the natural consequences of intercourse, such as the morning after pill which is often also an abortifacient. We'll look in our medical ethics, our bioethics course, uh, the difference between morning after pills and when they're abortifacient and when they're not. Um, but briefly stated in this context, there is a contraceptive use of them rather than an abortion use of them, but is after the act, not before. So what is contraception? It can be before the act, it can be after the act, it can be during the act. It can be about the end, or it can be about the means to the end. All of those are contraception. Is that stating the obvious? Or Okay, so she's given a, a pretty thorough definition there. So page seven. Uh, do you remember we, when I summarized John Paul II's entire theology of the body in two classes? Um, well, that page is very similar to this page on page seven. Uh, when I did that summary, as I footnoted, I was drawing on Janet Smith. This is also Janet Smith's large, I've, I've repackaged it slightly, but here focused on the question of contraception. And if you look in the book on these pages, she's drawing on John Paul II here. Definition of contraception at the top there, just as we had on the previous page. So first, what is the conjugal act, the marital act, sexual intercourse? It expresses something. It expresses the total mutual self-giving between spouses and fosters this mutual self-gift. Two things there. It expresses that, but also fosters that. We'll dwell on that later as well um, in this course, later in the course. So the conjugal act, marriage, and conjugal love are ordained by their very nature to children. Quoting Vatican II, man can fully discover his true self only by a sincere gift of himself. And all human loving involves self-gift, but the self-giving in marriage differs from friendship in that it is total, has no limits, is beyond sharing possessions, is to share one's life, and is mutual. So, you know, there are elements of that in any friendship but all those together then makes conjugal love different from friendship. The conjugal act itself is an act of mutual self-giving 
inherently and inseparably ordered to both union and procreation. Whereas contraception is unnatural because it deliberately thwarts the meaning of the act by directly opposing uh, the meaning of, of procreation. Okay, the unitive and procreative meanings. So there's a relationship as we, when we talked about the ends of marriage, we talked about these two ends in particular and how they have an interrelationship. And here we're drawing on JP2. The unitive meaning of sex, he says, is by means of the procreative meaning. How? Well, procreation, a child, is a bond that joins the couple together in an exclusive way. Offspring and procreation are not a good distinct from marriage, but are a part of the good of marriage. So when a man and a woman have a child together, whether they want it or not, there is something that connects them evermore. Um, and that that is how there is, the unity has its deepest meaning through this procreative dimension. Even when, you know, lots of cases, the individual act doesn't result in a child, but that's still the meaning of the act, this ordering to procreation. And the union, what makes this union different from all kinds of other unions, this inherent ordering to this incredible thing, a child that bonds them together. So contracepted sex, well, she says, sex that is not open to procreation is not truly unitive. It is robbed of what makes it ultimately most unitive. It is robbed of the ability for two to become one flesh through the new life they could create. Contracepted sex does not express total self-gift because it withholds from one's spouse one's fertility and all that it means. So this phrase, um, here she's drawing, drawing on a commentator of John Paul II, Cormac Burke, not John Paul II directly, but this phrase, I give you everything but not my fertility, she says that's a contradiction. You know, marital love is giving everything. I give you everything but not this. There's a, a contradiction there. And then quoting John Paul II directly in one of his um, audiences, the violation of the interior order of the conjugal union, which is rooted in the very order of the person, that's what constitutes the essential evil of the contraceptive act a violation of the interior order of conjugal union. And then using more of the phraseology of body, language of the body. So she says, the language of the body, there's a lie in contraception. The actions speak, bodily actions have an inherent meaning that we must respect. And contraception is a lie because it uses objectively contradictory language. The body is saying, I give you everything, but actually I'm doing something to not give you everything. And she makes the contrast with Judas's kiss, that his act said one thing, but meant another. And she says, contraceptive sex is like Judas's kiss. Some comments on the Judas's kiss thing. I remember Monsignor Rawls used that in the. He did, yeah. Weekend. Yeah. Okay, no one's going to say that's only an analogy. Yeah, because this isn't, it is different from sex. Judas's kiss. 
So this is an analogy. It's not, in a sense, a strict description of what's wrong with contraception. And whenever we use analogy, I think it's important for us as the speaker to be aware we're doing that. But also it can sometimes make our argument more powerful when we explicitly say, yes, I'm making a comparison here, this is an analogy, but what you see in this is like that. I'm not saying it is the same thing. So why is Judas's kiss wrong? The body means, expresses something, but the person thwarts it. Contraception, the body expresses something, total mutual self-giving, but the person is intentionally thwarting that meaning of the act. Any other comments on that page? Some of this you've heard multiple times. I'm trying to kind of pull everything together in this context. So to repeat, what is sex about? What is the conjugal act about? It's about how is it different from friendship? How is it different from other ways a man and a woman might relate? It's mutual, so it's self-giving, at the kind of the most obvious, but there's something about it that is mutual and total, um, reciprocal, doesn't have limits, whereas contraception is directly changing the act, seeking to change the act, to put a limit on it. Okay, over the page, page eight then. So in our last but one lecture, when I compared natural family planning and contraception, I already made the point about this word uh, per se destinatus or phrase as a translate uh, as a phrase in humanivite per se destinatus how does that get translated into english so what did humanivite say it said um, each and every marital act must remain per se destinatus to the procreation of human life the act must also always have this inherent ordering towards human life, towards procreation. And I noted that a popular mistranslation in the early years especially just said open. Um, so say the above was a popular early, early translation of the 1968 text saying open but I said it's seriously misleading. And here I'm quoting or articulating Janet Smith's argument. The Latin translated above as open is per se destinatus, which more literally means retain its natural potential or no impairment to its natural capacity, or as I more loosely translate it, not closed if you're going to want something kind of a bit more simplistic. And somehow not closed isn't the same thing as open. Um, then clarify, I say, per se destinatus does not imply a subjective attitude. For example, it does not imply the couple must be desiring a child with each act of intercourse. Or that the couple must not be planning an abortion if they conceive. I say otherwise, I say likewise, it does not imply the objective state that the couple are fertile at this moment and likely to conceive, or NFP is permissible because it doesn't work, it isn't reliable, and they're likely to get pregnant from Vatican roulette, and thus the act is open to life. 
And I've heard good priests trying to be orthodox give sermons with this subjective meaning of the word open, um, which isn't what the church is actually saying. So there is a broader sense in which marriage, every marriage must have this openness to life. But the individual act today doesn't need to have a subjective willing of life at this moment. That is perfectly fine, the just causes thing we looked at two classes ago, perfectly fine to say, okay, at this moment in our marriage, this is not a good time to have a child. We are not willing a child at this moment. We don't hate children, don't get anything against them, but at this moment, this is not the time. We are not choosing a child now. Okay, new. This I didn't say in our lecture a couple times ago. Two examples of sexual acts that remain per se destinatus to human procreation. First, an act where the couple are too old to be fertile. So let's pause and think about that. So you reach my age and the body starts falling apart and nothing's quite working the way it used to. Um, but a husband and a wife are still able to engage in the marital act. They're not fertile, but the act is complete, but not fertile. The act still has this inherent ordering towards life. It's not going to achieve that because of the age of the bodies, but that is just what the act is ordered towards. So there are all kinds of actions we engage with that have a certain meaning, but they're not at this moment going to kind of achieve that fulfillment. Second example, an act when a woman is at a time in her cycle when she's not fertile. I say abstaining when fertile does not thwart the nature of the act used when infertile. It remains an ordinary act of intercourse. The nature of the act is not changed. Its finality is not tampered with. So just because it's a day in her monthly cycle when she's not fertile, even on that infertile day, the, if you engage in the marital act on that day, the act continues to have that meaning, just as it would 30 years later when she's not fertile at all. That's just in the nature of the act. And the fact she's not fertile on that day, she hasn't caused that, it just is the case. In contrast, I say, some acts inherently unapt for procreation and thus not per se destinatus for life. Anal sex, there's nothing about that that is ordered to life. Oral sex, masturbation, either alone or mutual homosexual acts. All of those four are just not ordered to life, are not with that ordered to real union. Um, they're not per se destinatus, open to life in that sense. So summarizing at the bottom there, I say open is subjective, and refers to the motive of the couple, whereas retain its natural potential is objective and refers to the act itself. And then I quote Smith saying, the distinctions to be made here are at times subtle, but they are nonetheless real and important. Yeah. I'm not sure I quite understand what you mean by subjective attitude. Is that... Um, I think I'm Okay, so I need to repeat this differently. Um, so if you are wanting to have a child, what I'm trying to say is that the word open in English, what does that imply? It implies an attitude. 
at least is how it, if you put it in the context of how that is translated at the top of the page, it implies an attitude rather than implying something about the inherent ordering of the act itself. Exactly. Because they know that there will not be a child at the end of this act. So therefore, having a, a more objective stance uh, word is going to clarify um, you know, that, that it's not a, a subjective, I, I want this mm -hmm. as the end of my act. Yeah, so the problem with the word open is it would seem to also forbid natural family planning. Because on the day of the month when the act will not be fertile and they're engaging in the act, if they're doing that because they don't want to have a child, the word to say that they're still open to life doesn't really seem to work in the English language. Whereas to say, but the act still retains its natural potential it's kind of indicating there's something a little more technical in terms of what we're saying. Is that clarified? Yeah. Okay. So I would say in general, just avoid using the word open because it is capable of so many different meanings that therefore... I think I heard it more as the, like, open is being... That it retains its natural. Okay, and and then and then that's. And so you were hearing it in a useful sense. I'm trying to indicate it can mean yeah. something else. Yeah. Um. Okay, analogies, page nine. Yeah, so to repeat the point I made already, analogies both do and don't work something, an analogy is not the same thing, but it helps you understand something by being similar in some sense. That's what an analogy is. So I say at the top of the page, analogies to explain the difference between natural family planning and contraception. So I say the difference is not being artificial. So many artificial devices that work with nature are moral. For example, a hearing aid or the glasses I'm wearing on my face. These are artificial, but they are not unnatural. They are working with nature. They're restoring nature to function, not opposing its function. I say, repeating what I've said many times by now, the difference between NFP and contraception is not in the intention that both NFP and contraception aim to not have a child, at least not at this time. With that, the difference is not in its subjective attitude in being open in that sense. So, some per se destinatus analogies. First analogy, sleeping. I say a man asleep still has a rational nature even when this is unactualized in his sleep. He's not opposed his natural nature by going to sleep. He's simply recognizing the patterns and nature of sleeping. I'm going to contrast that with getting drunk, where you render yourself into an in a non-rational state. But simply recognizing that the body in its natural functioning, in its fulfillment of its natural functioning, needs times of sleeping, needs times of being awake, that it's perfectly natural and fine to go to sleep. <laughs> I know I'm raising a question you wouldn't even have thought was a question, but the, the analogy here with getting drunk, 
scan down to the bottom of the page to see the analogy. So where it says in italics, in contrast, I say, getting drunk is not the same as going to sleep. A man thwarts his rational nature by willfully getting drunk. He's chosen a course of action that is contrary to his dignity as a rational creature. Sleeping versus getting drunk. In both of these acts, you continue to be a rational being, but in one of the acts, you do not respect your rational nature. Comments on that analogy? So in sleeping, being drunk, your nature isn't changed, but are you respecting your nature? Or are you thwarting it? And in getting drunk, kind of, that's the whole thing. I, I don't want to be rational tonight. How about getting drunk to fall asleep? Uh, so there you're distinguishing between getting drunk as an end and getting drunk as a means. Are we then going to want to distinguish how much is getting drunk? Because I can drink enough to be not fully rational and sleepy, which isn't the same as when I just get myself utterly plastered. So I think getting plastered in order to fall asleep um, the end and the means, it wouldn't be an appropriate means to that end. It also just doesn't really work. You then wake up a couple hours later, um, thirsty, uncomfortable, and whatever. You, and you, in the morning, you wouldn't have had it. Hmm? Sorry, yes. Um, you don't wake up in the morning feeling refreshed, having had a good night's sleep. which we might say from a natural law perspective is an indication that this isn't a pattern of behavior that fulfills our nature. And some of the statistics we looked at in terms of what contraception does to relationships in a similar or an analogous manner indicates there's something here that doesn't fulfill your human nature. It offers you some, it promises something but doesn't deliver in the same way that I'm not tired, I can't sleep, and I think, well, I'll just have a few more shots of whiskey and then I'll kind of feel tired. It kind of promises then you'll be able to sleep, but actually then don't sleep well. Less of an issue when you're young because the body just naturally does everything properly, naturally sleeps well. The older you get, the more people are inclined to have a nightcap uh, or two or three to help them sleep, but you then don't sleep well. Okay, back to up the page underneath the sleeping, a blind eye. Different analogy here. So a blind eye is still ordered towards sight. And using a partially working eye that has not caused this, um, yeah, Using a partially working eye has not caused the partial function. So first thing in the morning, before I pick up my glasses, um, I'm not seeing the room properly. I kind of see that there are things out there, and I know my bedroom to have a vague idea what's where. Um, but I've not caused myself to not see properly. So to not use my eye at full capacity isn't sinful in the same way that engaging in the marital act when it's unitive but not procreative today, not fertile today, isn't sinful. Whereas if I take an, a pen and poke myself in the eye to render myself blind, then I've directly thwarted that organ, um, I can now see you again, uh, that organ and everything about the activity there that has meaning for me as a human being. 
The blind eye is one of Janet Smith's examples. Okay, old age, here I've, I've said this one already. An old couple's union is still per se destinatus ordered towards children, even when they are old and infertile. The conjugate retains this meaning, even when not actualized. Similarly, long-term infertility. A sex act still has a procreative meaning, even when a young couple are infertile. It'll be couples that will come to you for marriage preparation, whatever, and they might know from the beginning their chances of conceiving are very low because of one condition or another. But if they can physically engage in the act, consummate the act, the act itself still has this ordering towards life. That is still what the act is about. And that's different from them changing the act in some way, tampering with it in some way, thwarting its meaning in some way, to render it infertile. So say the conjugal act possesses this inherent meaning, even though the young couple are infertile. The procreative meaning of the act is not thwarted, even though it's not actualized. Comments on that? Seeing the, the act still has this meaning, even though it's not actualized. Which then leads us on to an infertile day of the month. So this is our NFP example. An infertile day of the month for a normally fertile couple. A sex act still has a procreative meaning, even when performed on an infertile day. The procreative meaning of the act is not thwarted, even though it's not actualized. Rather, the couple simply recognize the pattern and nature of the woman's fertility cycles. So sexual intercourse on a day when you are not fertile engages the unitive meaning, even while knowing that the procreative meaning is not being realized. So recognizing the body's cycles like sleeping, waking, um, but not changing the act. Daniel, can you read that? So this is, again, as I quoted a couple lectures ago, quoting from Elizabeth Anscombe, um, for you to use the rhythm. For you to use the rhythm method, not just by having intercourse now, but by not having it next week, say. And not having it next week isn't something that does something to today's intercourse and turn it into an infertile act. Today's intercourse is an ordinary act of intercourse, an ordinary marriage act. So she's using the word rhythm method because she's writing this many, many years ago when the rhythm method was the science of the day, um, presuming a 28-day regular cycle. Um, whereas now, women monitoring their indicators of fertility, they can do that if it's a 25-day cycle or a 40, I mean, it, it doesn't need to be a regular predictable number of days. Um, today's intercourse is an ordinary act of intercourse, an ordinary marriage act. You know it's infertile and you're planning for it to be infertile, but you haven't changed the act. Bottom of the page, condom. Um, using a condom is not like having sex on an infertile day. A man thwarts the procreative meaning of his sex act when he puts on a condom in sex. He has chosen to engage in an act, putting on a condom, designed to directly thwart the procreative meaning of the act. So that's a series of analogies. Uh, thoughts, comments on those. Again, analogies are similar or have some similarity, but they're not describing the same thing. 
but they have something of a similarity that helps us understand the thing we're trying to, to describe. I quoted the, towards the end of the bold bit. Mm -hmm. That is very helpful. Which is the one from Elizabeth Anscombe. Yeah. yeah. I think that's real helpful for people to understand. Yeah. And that's why I think that's possibly the third time I've quoted to it to you in different different lectures. Um, okay, over the page. Page ten. So say, here I'm making some clarifications, so terms, words, about natural, animal, and artificial. Um, because you'll notice in some literature people will refer to artificial contraception. Now, contraception isn't problematic because it's artificial. Um, so generally speaking, in my notes, I will refer to contraception, not artificial contraception. Because the phrase artificial contraception somehow implies natural contraception is okay. Or the NFP is natural contraception. Most writers these days, good Catholic writers for some time, will reserve the word contraception for the immoral act. Um, and therefore render the label artificial redundant. Um, I've sometimes popularly heard people trying to explain what the church says and say, well, natural contraception in NFP is okay. That's not the language of theologians, so I think it's better for us to steer clear of that. And so just refer to contraception as a problem, natural family planning, not use the word contraception in relation to that. Because the church is not against technology. The church is not against things being artificial. The church is against things that are unnatural, things that thwart our nature, things that somehow damage us at some interior level, even when it's not immediately obvious to us. Okay, I'll, spelling through that in a bit more detail on that page there, page 10. Say, so artificial does not mean in unnatural. Say, so natural, philosophically speaking, implies something that is in accord with the nature, purpose, end of a thing. Say, so the following artificial aids restore a thing to function. Spectacles enable us to see Hearing aids enable us to hear. Artificial aids to assist with your knowledge of your fertility do not cause the fertility or infertility. Whereas in contrast, unnatural means it works against nature, against the nature of the act. So I think I've already referred, there are these um, digital monitors that a woman can use that will digitally she can scan herself and somehow know what where she is in her monthly cycle that is artificial as a gadget but that's not a problem for the church because it's not changing the act it's just giving herself knowledge that said all of those devices are nowhere near as accurate as the various billings method and so forth for a woman to monitor her symptoms. If they became more accurate, fine. Um, and if they were completely 100% accurate, and so the couple would know for sure that tonight if they engage in intercourse, they will definitely not have a child, the act still has this inherent ordering towards life. That is still the meaning of the act. It's not open just because they're not sure 100% about the reliability of monitoring symptoms. 
word artificial as opposed to unnatural. We're clear that these are different things we're talking about. So two men engaging in sodomy, that is not artificial, there's no device, but it is unnatural, contrary to the nature of the sexual faculty. Another distinction here, bodily or animal. I see natural does not just mean bodily or animal. And Smith makes this point um, very well in her book. She says, the church fully permits sterilization, abortion, contraception, and in vitro fertilization for animals, and yet does not permit them for humans. So it's not opposing animal nature that's wrong nor is it opposing human biological processes per se that is wrong. But rather, Michael, can you read this quote from her for us? It is because the generative biological processes of man mean something greater for man than they do for animals, that the biological processes are evaluated differently. These things mean more to us than they do to the animals, therefore they get a different moral evaluation. So swans, when they mate, mate for life. But generally speaking in the animal kingdom, animals do not mate for life. That it does not have the same significance to them that we see it has for humans. Whereas while we can find examples in human history of, um, what am I trying to say here? of a lack of permanence in marriage. Generally speaking, we see enough of human history and human behavior to say there's something about the marital act, the sexual act, that humans discern in this, that this belongs to a couple that are committed to each other for life. Um, humans sex means more to us than it means to the animals. Therefore, there are all kinds of things about sex that we are, as Catholics, as moralists, fussy about saying that is acceptable, that's not acceptable. Whereas for the animals, it doesn't mean that much to them. And the animals don't mean as much. Persons matter. Personal acts and sex is the most intimate, most personal of acts, these matter. That, as an apologetic for parishioners, I also think is a powerful argument in terms of indicating the church is not against science. The church just values you more than it values an animal. You've all heard the objection that the church is obsessed with sex. Um, well, Smith turns that on its head and notes that what that really means is that the people that say these things don't matter. Um, also, there's a type of liberal argument that says, uh, you know, you Catholics, you're obsessed with sex. It doesn't really matter that much. Um, well, Smith is saying, well, no, we're saying actually it does matter. And we're being restrictive in particular because it does matter. So she, as I phrase it here, there's a, the progressive approach has a disregard for the importance of the body. The deep dimensions of the human person enter into the generative acts. That far from it being the church that reduces sex to something merely physical, it's the defenders of contraception that treat sex as merely physical, something whose finalities can be altered without affecting the persons involved. I then have two quotes there from Veritas's Splendor, um, where John Paul II um, comments uh, he doesn't use the word physicalism because he's not writing in English, um, but um, he's noticing that in the liberal approach, 
permissive, progressive approach. There's just this way of treating the body and all that as if it's just something material. It doesn't really affect you as a person. So he notes the mistaken tendency to treat the human body as raw data, materially necessary for freedom to make its choice, yet extrinsic to the person, the subject, and the human act. Their functions would not be able to constitute reference points for moral decisions because these inclinations would be merely physical goods called by some premoral. He notes also in that section that the rational soul is the form of the body and that it is in the unity of body and soul that the person is the subject of his own moral acts. Quoting this to indicate, these are him indicating so Smith's whole thing about noticing the body and the body parts and its meanings has a coherence within this thing he's referring to here. Um, the inclinations, uh, the functions as reference points from all decisions. Um, so he's not tying himself exactly to her argument, but he's giving a coherence to the type of argument she's using. Okay, page 11. Top half of page 11 is um, directly copied from our lecture notes on the difference between natural family planning and contraception. So just repeating word for word here. Why is contraception a sin? So trying to summarize all this in the light of everything we've been looking at uh, the last two lectures. First, contraception is a sin because it directly opposes one of the God-given meanings of the sexual act. That both marriage and sex have a meaning that exists before a couple get married and before they engage in the act proper to sex. God's given us this great gift and intends us to use it in accordance with the purposes he has established in it. And both marriage and sex are orders of two things, union and procreation. That can go wrong in two ways. Uh, concerning union, to seek sex without lifelong union is to oppose the unitive purpose God has established in sex. Whereas concerning procreation, remember I spelled this out three kind of steps in this analysis here. First, not every marriage bears fruit in children, but every marriage remains ordered towards children. And a marriage that intended never to have children would be seriously lacking. It wouldn't actually be a marriage. Similarly, not every sexual act leads to children, but every sexual act remains ordered towards children. And finally, to directly oppose the procreative meaning by contraception is to directly violate the meaning of the act, to directly violate the gift of sex that God has given. That's attempting to summarize at that point everything we've said about what contraception is, why it's wrong, why it thwarts the person by thwarting the act, the meaning of the act that the person is engaging in. So to phrase that differently, you as a person you are a body-soul unity. What you do with your body, these actions have a meaning. You find your fulfillment by respecting the meaning in your actions. You de-fulfill yourself by acting in a way that thwarts the meaning of your acts. Okay, the next lines are, again, repeating. If you scan down to the arrow bullet point in NFP, just to reinforce the point, what is different about NFP? In NFP, the couple either abstain from sexual intercourse, 
or they engage in an unaltered act of sexual intercourse. In both cases, the acts they do engage in have not been altered in any way. Abstaining when fertile does not thwart the nature of the act used when infertile. It remains an ordinary act of intercourse. The nature of the act has not changed, its finality is not tampered with. Natural family planning, in contrast to contraception, does not change the nature of the act. Rather, it simply spaces the use of the marital act so that a couple only have sexual intercourse when they're not fertile. Simply spaces the use of the marital act. And the last page of the notes just repeats what we had at a previous lecture about divorce and contraception. So just those statistics noting um, these vastly higher divorce rates among couples that contracept as opposed to couples that use natural family planning. And given that, the kind of progressive mindset sees children as a burden, sees children as a difficulty. You would expect that there not being children with contraception would lead to less stress and happier marriages and more long-lasting marriages. And that actually it's the opposite that's the case. That a lack of fulfilling the individual act causes a lack of fulfilling in the, in the whole union. Which isn't automatic, you know, we're not saying by that argument that every couple that uses contraception will divorce, um, but it will somehow damage the marriage. And so you as future pastors, you need to be clear in your own mind, regardless of how coherent you're going to be in expressing it, I'm trying to explain this to this couple because this will be good for this couple. I want this for them, not just um, because I have a duty to say this uh, as a priest to the church. Summarizing then, so this has just been one of the arguments against contraception, namely Janet Smith's. She's saying, broadly speaking, a version of the perverted faculty argument that the human fac the sexual faculty has a purpose we must respect that purpose in order for the couple to be happy to be fulfilled whereas contraception directly attacks the purpose of the human uh, of the sexual faculty by directly attacking its procreative function <laughs>